well, we're going to have the kids come right up here, and I'm going to pray for them before they leave. So kids, if you're going to get dismissed, come on up here really, really quick. I won't make you sing. I won't make you say anything. Just come on up here. I want to pray for you. Come on, Silas. I think there's people in the back who are going to take you. I think. Hi. Hey. Yeah. Let's pray before you go downstairs, okay? Lord Jesus, thank you for kids. Thank you that uh, they can teach us just as much as we can teach them. And Lord, I thank you that you set an example saying, let the little kids come to me. I pray, Father, that you would uh, help them learn downstairs, help them have fun, and may the things that they learn be etched on their heart. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You guys go ahead and go with Miss Kendra. Go ahead and go. Good job, good job, good job. You're going to go with your daddy, that's fine. As they are departing, as cute as they are, uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 1, and uh, grab your bulletin insert also, because we're going to start this week with another self-evaluation, kind of like we did last week. For now, I want you to think of one word, just one word that you would use to describe you. Don't say it out loud, Okay. But just one word you would use to describe you. When you have it, go ahead and write it down on your bulletin insert. Okay, I see enough eyes that I can keep going. Now think of how a friend or a family member would describe you. Just one word, how a friend or a family member would describe you, and go ahead and write that down. And we'll finish with this. Think of one word that you think God would describe you by or how he would describe you. Just one word of how you think God would describe you. And write that down too. Now take a look at those words. Do they match? Are they similar Do they fit together at all? Today's text is Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Paul tells Titus, I left you on the island of Crete so that you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. An elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife, and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. An overseer or an elder is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. I know there's a few of you in here who are retired, and there's a few of you who have been in jobs for quite some time. But think back, and do you remember the job interview? 
Remember the nerves that you would get? Do you remember prepping for the questions that they might ask? You know, questions about your skill set, your previous jobs, your, uh, your education, maybe what you could offer the company that you were applying for. And there's usually a question like this. Describe yourself in one word. It's a fantastic question. Sometimes companies will say, well, give me three positive traits about yourself and, and give me one that you can grow on. I mean, questions like this have become the norm in the job interview. So much so that there are websites and articles devoted to this specific question. In fact, they even give you words that you should use to describe yourself. Words that will catch the, the interviewer's uh, attention. Words like effective, attentive, dependable, dedicated, tenacious. You know, the list goes on with the hopes of whatever word you use catching their attention, making you stand out above the others. Now, if you're really good, so they say, you can have one word that is both a positive and a negative. For example, a person could say, I am driven. I'm so driven that I'm going to get the job done no matter what. But sometimes in my drivenness, I may not ask others' opinions in much, and I may step on their toes a little bit, but I still get the job done, so I am driven. You see, a positive and a negative. For those young ones like Ronnie, who will one day be in a job interview, be thinking of these words. Words that describe you. This morning, we continue with Paul's charge to Titus. Finish the work and appoint elders. An elder being one who oversees, one who cares for and protects God's people, God's flock. Last week, we looked at what I thought Paul meant when he used the term blameless, when he used the term above reproach. A person can be blameless and above reproach and still have made mistakes. They just have to own up to them. They have to realize their wrongdoing, be held accountable, seek forgiveness, and, and then, by God's grace alone, continue to live in a way that they don't fall into that sin again. Remember, Paul told Titus, look for habitual, unaddressed sin in people's lives, and they don't appoint those people as elders. And we also last week looked at how Paul emphasized making sure those that Titus would appoint as elders were leading well in the home, even before he put them in charge of people in the church. And Paul talked about making sure the man was faithful to his wife and making sure his kids were believers who were not known for being wild and insubordinate. Now, with all this being understood, with, with this foundation of leadership being poured, Paul then lists some characteristics, some leadership qualities that Titus should be looking for. And we see those in verses 7 through 9. I'll read them again. As an elder must be... Uh, an elder is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, must not be a heavy drinker, violent or dishonest with money. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life, and he must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he'll be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. In, in a little bit, in a little way, we can see how this would be Paul's list of interview question words that should jump out to Titus as he's talking to people, seeing who was qualified to be an elder. 
Now, Paul lays these out in a list of musts and must-nots. Now, we're going to start with the must-nots. This is uh, verse 7, and uh, we're just going to go right in order. An elder must not be arrogant. This also could be translated as overbearing or obstinately self-willed. One author writes that at the, wor- the root of this word is a fundamental selfishness that compels someone to ride roughshod over others in an effort to satisfy themselves. Another author says this person obstinately maintains his own opinions and asserts his own rights while is reckless of the rights and opinions and interests of others. Do you know anyone like this? This is the same word Peter used when he was describing the wicked people God would punish one day. In 2 Peter 2.10, he says, God is especially hard on those who follow their own twisted sexual desire and who despise authority. These people are proud and arrogant, daring even to scoff at supernatural beings without so much as trembling. Do you run roughshod over people with an attitude that only you are ever right? If this is how someone acts or functions, people both inside and outside of the church will see this. And Paul says an elder must not be like that. An elder must not be arrogant. Now Paul continues, an elder must not be quick-tempered. He must not be an angry man. Now in Greek, there's two words for angry. One is tumos and one is orgelon. The word here is orgelon, and it means prone to anger and harboring resentment nurturing long-standing anger. This is a wrath that a man nurses to keep it warm. So an elder must not be one who harbors bitterness and anger against another person, a person never letting that anger go. And again, I think it's key that we, that we note that this is for people both inside and outside the church. So an elder must not be quick-tempered, must also not be given to too much wine, Or, in the English Standard Version, he must not be a drunkard. This word actually means uh, they can't be given to an overindulgence of alcohol, of wine. But the Jews actually expanded it. And here the word describes the character of a man who, even in his sober moments, still acts with the lack of self-control and outrageousness that they would act if they were under the influence. Inside and outside of the church. You can't go out with your buddies on Friday night and get smashed and not expect people to notice. Plus, your decisions, your choices, the way you interact with people cannot seem like you are a little bit under the influence. I think that's fair, don't you? Just nod. Okay. Paul goes on and says, an elder must also not be violent, pugnacious. The Greek word here means to be a striker, one who hits. It's interesting because in the early church writings, there are stories of elders who would um, chastise erring members by physically hitting them. Paul says this is not right. And I think of the church in New York who just a couple of weeks ago took a couple of young boys into a back room and beat them. They called it church discipline. One of those boys died. The other one was severely injured. Paul says an elder cannot be someone who comes to blows. What's interesting is that the Greeks actually expanded the meaning of this word. They took it to mean someone who could also browbeat others, someone who has a violence of speech. 
We could say someone who is a bully. So Paul says, if you're going to be an elder, you can't be a physical bully, an emotional bully, a spiritual bully. We may be able to hold our tongue on Sundays, but do we demoralize people with our words in the office or in the gym or in the home? An elder must be above reproach, cannot be accused of bullying anyone inside or out of the church. Now Paul wraps up his list of must-nots with this. An elder must not be dishonest with money. He must not be one who seeks gain in disgraceful ways. This is something that you'll see in verse 11 of the same chapter that is part of the Cretan culture. It's something that it was just who they were. Paul says an elder must be able to care for the church funds and not have money be such a driving force that they seek it no matter the cost, even at the expense of others. So here's that list of must-nots again. An elder must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. If you were to go into a job interview and they said, describe yourself to me in one word, if you said, I'm angry, I'm a drunkard, I'm violent, I'm arrogant, do you think you'd get the job? (laughs) It depends on what job. Well said. With this list of must-nots, I was struck by the fact that though it's something an individual may do, it's a way an individual may act, that action will greatly affect others. And that action really is an internal condition that leads to an outward expression. We may be able to hide some of these must-nots in our own being, but God knows what's going on in the inside. And Paul says an elder must be above reproach in this list of must-nots. Now on the flip side, he says there are quite a few things that an elder must be. We see those beginning in verse 8. Rather, Paul says, he must enjoy having guests in his home. He must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. Now this really breaks down into three different sections. The first is this. What an elder must be towards other people. He starts off by saying you must be hospitable or must love having people in your home. This we know is a call to Christians in general. We see this in 1 Peter 4, 9, where Peter says, cheerfully share your home with those who need a place to stay or a meal to eat. Now the word here literally means to love strangers. So an elder must love strangers. So in this letter, Titus is, is probably Uh, emphasizing one of two things. One, the stranger, the Christian traveler. Believe it or not, there was a lot of people in that day and in that region that traveled. And hotels, as best as you could call them hotels, were pricey. So for a Christian to have their home available for other travelers that they did not know, Paul says this is a good thing. You must be hospitable. And secondly, it could also mean that Paul was telling the people who would be elders, you got to be willing to Have church meet in your home. Like literally, have the people come into your your, your place where you live. We see in the end of Romans, in the end of 1 Corinthians, in the end of Colossians, Paul thanks specific people for opening their homes to allow churches to meet there. So the elder, Paul says, must be lovingly open to strangers and to his home. 
in kind of the same way, he says a, an elder must be a lover of good. This describes someone who is inclined to pursue things and people that are virtuous, inherently good. One author says this describes a person whose heart answers to the good in whatever, the, in whatever person, in whatever place, and whatever actions he finds. Do you know anyone like this? I know somebody like this. He's part of a group of pastors that I meet with from the Garland District. This guy finds the good in everything. He's just drawn to it. It's almost magnetic. Loving strangers, loving what is good, these fall into the same category which an elder must be towards others. Now we look at what an elder must be in himself. An elder must have self-control. Now the Greek word here is sophron. It means someone who wisely controls and wisely uses every instinct and every passion of their being. It could be translated as someone with a sound mind. This is the same word that Titus uses in chapter 2, verse 12, and it's a result of God's grace. It's not something you wake up in the morning and say, huh, I think from here on out I'm going to have self-control. It's something God gives, and it's something that you have to nurture and something you have to work at. It's interesting because this exact same word is used again by Paul in verse 5 and verse 2 of chapter 2 when Paul tells the older men and the older women to develop this trait and demonstrate it to the younger people who they'll be raising up. So he says a person must be self-controlled. And the next word Paul says is that an elder must have uprightness. Now, this is also found in chapter 2, verse 12. To be upright meant to be just. It meant to give to God and to people what they were due. To man goes respect. To God goes reverence. This person will always be honest in dealing with people. Someone who lives this way is said to be upright. You remember the story of Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents. See, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant with a child that wasn't his... He had every right to disgrace her publicly. But Matthew 1 verse 19 calls Joseph an upright man, a just man, meaning it would not be consistent with his character to expose her publicly. There's 80 times in the New Testament that this word is used, just or upright. It's interesting because Greek thought linked the next word in our list of musts with the previous two saying an elder must be devout or holy. Now, this does not just mean they wear a tie on Sunday mornings. This does not just mean they speak a certain language with certain people. Similar to the idea of godliness that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, this term describes a, a person's inward purity that has outward results. Someone who is devout and holy has an internal life that matches their external actions. This word's only used eight times in the New Testament. Six of those describe Jesus. The other two is here in Titus and then in, in Timothy where he talks about men lifting holy hands in prayer. So an elder must be devout. Their internal must match their external. Finally, and what an elder must be is the term disciplined. Now this could also mean self-restraint. It could mean mastered from within. There's a lot of overlap between disciplined and self-control that we looked at a couple of minutes ago. The difference is that disciplined here should be understood in the sense of the exercise of godly restraint based on the knowledge of God's will. So a person could not do something 
not just because they have the self-will and the self-control to not do it, but because they realize this is against God's will, so they're not going to do it. That make sense? Discipline. Now this comes up the list of what an elder must be within himself. And Paul finishes his instructions to Titus, telling him what an elder must be within the church. This is verse 9. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message that he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. So within the church, an elder must hold firmly, believe strongly in what they were taught. He must believe the message that he's passing on. And then out of that belief, some of your Bibles will say, so that or then, out of that firm belief in what he was taught, the elder must be able to encourage the body through sound teaching. Encourage the body through solid doctrine. And I'll be honest, this one is hard. Okay? I've learned that there's a fine line between a, a challenging message that leads to life change, that, that leads to encouragement, and a message that leaves people thinking, oh, man, I'm never going to achieve, and, and boy, I just feel awful. In the last six years, in my regular preaching, I've done sometimes good and other times not so good. And I've had people who have come and told me on both accounts. It is tough sometimes to encourage through sound teaching. But Paul says an elder must be able to do that because they hold so firmly to what they believe. Finally, and we're going to talk more about this next week, an elder must be able to oppose those or to refute and rebuke those who oppose what he is teaching. This is not easy either, especially in today's society where people say there is nothing that can be certain. But we'll look at that more next week. Here's the elder qualifications one more time. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. He must enjoy having guests in his home. He must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. And he must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message that he was taught. Then he'll be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. I think it could go without saying that this list is not an end-all, be-all. You can't look at this list and say, okay, check, check, check. I'm good there, good there, good there, and say, fine, I'm fit. I'm fit to be an elder. Okay? There's other things, other qualifications, other traits that could have been added to the list of must-nots and others that could have been added to the list of musts. musts excuse me. I think what Paul is saying is, is he's really laying out a way of evaluating whether or not a person has a life capable of outward visible assessment. You know, was the person's condition of their heart visible through their actions? And could they lead a people as they sought to discover what it meant to follow Christ, especially in a culture that drastically fought against how Christ said one should live? Finish the work, Paul says. Appoint elders. And as long as they're described like this, as long as they're known like this, especially on the island of Crete, then these men will be off to a good start. I began this morning asking you to describe yourself in one word, and then asking you how a friend would describe you and how you thought God would describe you. That's that last part intentionally, 
Because I think we can look at a list like this, and maybe we miss the mark on one or two portions, and maybe then we start thinking, oh, God views me differently. God doesn't view me as capable. He doesn't view me as a leader. He doesn't view me positively. And yet, I think God does. We see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, that because of Christ, God has reconciled us to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he's brought us into his own presence, and you are holy, blameless, as you stand before him without a single fault. Did holy and blameless and faultless make your list of how God views you? God knows our heart. Jeremiah 17.10 tells us this. And yet he loves us unconditionally. There's a, there's a song on the Christian radio right now by Danny Gokey called More Than You Think I Am. And it's God speaking in the second verse. It says, rumor has it there's a gavel in my hand that I'm only here to condemn. But let me tell you secrets you would have never known. I think of you as my best friend. So how does God describe you? God knows our heart. And coming back to Paul's charge to appoint leaders, you know your heart. Are you able to lead? And if not, what needs to change? Whether or not you end up with your picture on our official wall of church leadership, at some point in your life, somebody's going to follow you. And are you living in such a way that you're worthy to be followed. Lance Ford wrote that book I showed you last week called Unleader, and in it he says, the only leaders worthy of being followed in the body of Christ are the ones who are following Christ himself, his ways and his means. So I guess it comes back to seek first, Christ. And when you're truly seeking him with your whole heart, you may be surprised at what words people would use to describe you. Maybe even a word like leader. Let's pray. God, thank you for this list today. And even though we recognize it's not an end-all, be-all list, it is a good starting place for us. And Lord, I know that as I read it over and over this past week, there were places where I was convicted. And I thank you for that. And Lord, if there are places where others in here are convicted, I pray that they would act on that conviction. Lord, may they take the steps they need to make sure that their inward is matching their outward. And Lord, in all of that, may they recognize how you see them as forgiven, as faultless, as pure by the blood of Christ on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that you have called some people to lead. And I pray, Lord, for the church leadership. God, as we come to the end of this year and we're uh, reflecting on who to have serve the, the next year. I pray that you give us wisdom and guidance. And I pray, Lord, for those who will be continuing to serve uh, more of their term. God, may they be ones who truly seek after you. We want to be a people known, Lord, known for our actions and our love. And that's got to be based out of our love for you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if uh, our inward matches our outward, it really will be all about Jesus.
11 o'clock, formation hour will start in here. That gives you about 26 minutes to go and meet somebody that you haven't met. There's some new faces in here. Go and greet them. Uh, Go get some snacks and enjoy this week. May God bless you and protect you. May he smile upon you and be gracious to you. May he show you his favor and give you his peace. Amen? Amen.